Uh, welcome to our series part three of Picture This. Um, if you want notes, we've got those as well. You can grab those. Uh, we're talking about the future because if we don't get an idea of what our preferred future looks like, someone will hand us a preferred future. All right? If we don't get it clear in our minds of what the Lord wants, then someone else will give you options. How many of you, your mother or father, had a very clear idea of what you should have done with your life? And it wasn't necessarily wh where you wanted to go. Okay, so you know, if you don't have a preferred future, someone's going to hand you one. We've talked for a few weeks about things like vision, about favor from the Lord, mostly in regards to your own personal life or maybe your family. But this morning I want to talk about us, which is extremely comical because there are so few of us right here right now. So it's pretty funny that it's, it's just us. Some of you aren't even really aware of who us is. Us is those who the Lord is identifying as being a part of the Bridge family. And that means those that are on the fringe. That means those that are here every week. That means those sometimes that just kind of watch online. But this is a part of who you are, and that's who the us is. We are not necessarily a group with hard and fast borders, but I do want to be a group with a clear centrality that says this is what it means to be us. Have you ever watched something and said, that is not for me? I ain't doing that. I saw a clip this week of a guy in a wingsuit. You know what I mean when I say a wingsuit? Kind of like a, they're kind of a cross between a human being and Rocky the Flying Squirrel. You know, they've got these, they're rayon-like wings, and, and they jump off a cliff, and they'll glide for like a mile or two in this wingsuit, and then they'll pull a parachute and they'll land, because he, obviously he can't land. And I'm watching this clip, and as the guy jumps, they zoom in on him, and the wingsuit, I kid you not, is made of industrial strength trash bags and duct tape. And this guy glides for like a mile on trash bags and duct tape. And I'm watching that going under no circumstances. Like, you know, this wingsuit should be made out of this heavy material, even with a wingsuit made out of what it should be made out of. I'm not doing that. There's no way. This morning we're going to talk about something, and as we talk about it, some of you are going... I think I'd do the wingsuit thing first. Like, I'm not, I, I can't do that. I would jump off a cliff with a homemade wingsuit before I would do what you're talking about, Randy. Because we're going to talk about evangelism. Everybody's got a little nervous. I just, I, I could have said we're going to talk about just about anything. And I just about said something with the children in here. But I could say just about anything and you go, okay, what do you have to say? No, it's evangelism. Everybody leans back just a little bit. And I get it. But I, you've got to have a little bit of explanation here. I look at evangelism maybe a little differently than a lot of people do. I believe there are those who have the formal role of being an evangelist to the greater church or to the world. I believe those, there are those with a spiritual gift of evangelism. And then I believe there are most of us. However, the opportunity to operate in evangelism and to, to lead people to a knowledge of Jesus and the expectation of it from the Lord does rest on all of us. And that makes people nervous a little bit. Take a minute and look at how Jesus laid out the call to disciple the world and to lead people to him. Matthew 28, 16 to 18. Now, 11 disciples went to Galilee. Some of you are like, weren't there 12? One's already checked out. Okay, so this is post-resurrection. 
all right? Death on the cross, resurrection. He's got 11 guys left. They haven't replaced the, the odd man out. So they're a man down. They went to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Eleven guys who have seen him die and come back to life, and he gathers them and says, let's get together and do a worship night, and they're still like one eye open going, I don't know about this. How do you not know about this? You saw him die. He's now walking alive and yet you doubt. My point is, these are not necessarily people any more spiritual than you are. These are people who have seen God move and are still, they've got questions, they doubt. If you're Jesus, in this case, what do you do with these 11 guys? You've got to be thinking, I could get another 11. Like, I could trade these guys. Maybe there's like a swap, you know? Maybe there's a draft and I could like let three of them go and try and get three better guys. No, that's not what he does. He takes these 11 guys who are worshiping and doubting at the same time, and he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because he had died and rose from the dead. And then, we're going to read a little bit later, he actually gives that to them along with the expectation that they would tell the world. I grew up watching Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, these guys that would have these massive crusades in arenas, and thousands of people would come to Jesus. And from the time I was in college, people were asking the question, who is the next Billy Graham? It was obvious he, at that point he wasn't going to live forever. Who's going to be the next Billy Graham? What would it look like if the spirit that rested on Billy Graham rested on the church as a whole? Would we all be doing stadium meetings? No, there's not enough stadiums, not enough people to go to them. But what if that call that Jesus put on the disciples truly rested on all of us in a way that we could be used to bring people to Jesus? Now, I have probably as many thoughts about evangelism as I do about anything. If you've been with me, you know I have lots of thoughts. And I got a lot of thoughts about evangelism. Most of it formed from a long friendship with my friend Steve Shogren that you hear me talk about quite a bit. Steve was pastoring a vineyard of about 6,000 people when I was pastoring a little tiny church about half the size of the number we have now. We were an odd couple. He had more people on his stage than I had on my seats on any given Sunday. But we would go hang out, and Steve looked at everything at a 90-degree angle, and he taught me so much about the idea of how people come to know the Lord. And so this morning, I just want to go over some of those things really quickly with you. And in classic Steve Shogren fashion, we'll do it in a bit of an unusual way. I want to give you Top 10 thoughts about evangelism, all right? In the form of a top 10 list, we'll start from 10 and go down to 1. Some of you are too young to recognize the format, but that's okay. And this first one, I'm going to say something that all of you think, but nobody will actually say it. Number 10, the only thing that is worse than doing evangelism is being evangelized. The only thing that makes you more nervous than doing evangelism is for somebody to try and do that to you. Because when we think of evangelism, we think of that meme of somebody chasing somebody down the street saying, I'd like to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, as they run. Spring of 1986 in North Dakota, which is like winter everywhere else, but it was spring. And uh, I'd had half a semester of training in what was called evangelism explosion, which is even a funny name, you know, like 30 years later. 
Evangelism Explosion was a program that had been put together by a pastor in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a man named uh, D. James Kennedy, and it was how he grew this Presbyterian church that he had. Just, it just grew by leaps and bounds, and he did it by door-to-door evangelism. They would literally go down the street, knock on the door, have a conversation with someone, and he had this outline that you would memorize. And you would say this, and most people would say this. And then you would say this. And, and in the 60s in Florida, this worked like crazy. It really worked, and his church exploded. So, of course, he made a, a workbook, and he made it a class. And I take this class in Bible college about evangelism explosion, but we're not in Florida. It's 20 years later, and I am dumb as a post. So we go and they take us at the midterm of the semester, about 150 Bible college students, and they drive us to Wapaton, North Dakota. You guys know where Wapaton is. Wapaton's not big, is it? They dump 150 of us in this town of about 8,000 people and tell us to win the town for Jesus when we reach in four hours. So we had our outline. We knew what we were supposed to say. Supposed to knock on the door of strangers, engage in a conversation with them about eternity and where they would go if they died. And then lead them to Jesus, go to the next door, don't forget, don't miss the bus, be ready to leave in four hours. I don't know if what happened there was evangelism, it was more like terrorism. (laughs) Because everyone involved was terrified. I was terrified. The people whose doors we were knocking on were terrified. We ended up in an area of town that almost everyone was elderly. And now you have strangers knocking on the door talking about what happens when you die as if we have inside information. I had my outline. They didn't know their lines to my outline. I would say things. They would not say back the thing that the outline said they would say. And the conversation just, just got, it was there. It was terrible. It was hard for everybody involved. It worked in Florida in the 60s. It didn't work in the 80s in North Dakota. And it doesn't really work very well now, unless you are unbelievably gifted and able to do that. Most of you, let me take the pressure off, some of you are going, is he going to do this? No, we're not going to do this. And the reason we're not is most of you are not gifted in that. If you're gifted in that, go, go, go. But if you're not... Don't say, that's evangelism, and I can't do that, so guess what? I'm off the hook. Most people use that idea of evangelism to explain why they don't ever do evangelism. Because what we think of evangelism is terrifying to both those who are doing it and those that are having it done to them. That's why it makes people afraid. There's more to evangelism than what we did that day. Number nine, we naturally share what we like. How can you tell the new guy at your office is into CrossFit? He'll tell you. Because people that are into CrossFit talk about it. Is she into CrossFit? She never told me that. So I guess I just totally broke my rule. No, most people into CrossFit want to tell you about it. And I get it. I have a Peloton bike. I talk to people about my Peloton bike. If there are things that you like, you have a tendency to talk about it. There are certain products and experiences I can tell you about with great enthusiasm off the top of my head or things that have given me great frustration that I can talk about off the top of my head. Point is, we don't mind talking about the things that have made a difference in our life. It's actually far more natural than we realize. We naturally share the things we like with with those around us, but when it comes to Jesus, we feel compelled we've got to keep that to ourselves. 
we think, well, faith is, is private. That's not just incongruent. It's actually unchristian. If you look at Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus is speaking about you. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. In other words, the way you are made, that is not what you are for. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your life involves displaying what Jesus has done in you and displaying it proudly. That's not forcing your will on people. That is just showing them what's going on in your heart. It is unnatural to curb your enthusiasm about something like that. And I'm not saying that to scold you into evangelizing your neighbor, only to explain to you that in talking about what is important to you, it's not as weird to you as you think it is. In fact, if he's really done a work in your life and you believe all that, not having those conversations is a little stranger. Some of you have seen the, uh, the comic magician's pen and teller. I can't, I don't, I don't never remember which one's which, but the one guy talks, the other guy doesn't talk. But the guy who talks is uh, uh, an avowed atheist. But he's got this short little rant on YouTube where he talks about if you really believe these things that you say have faith, you have faith about and you don't talk about them, how incredibly hateful must you be to be content with the idea that you believe people are going to hell, but you feel too awkward about having the conversation. When your experience with Jesus informs your discussion with people, words come naturally and they're actually received by people. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying don't beat people over the head. Don't chase them down the street. But when they ask you why are you the way you are, be willing and able to speak about the things that God has done in your heart. This is one of the reasons why small groups can be so helpful. Because you can find yourself in a small group around a, a group of believers talking about the Lord, the things the Lord has done in your heart. It doesn't seem as weird when you start talking with your neighbor who doesn't believe it. And suddenly having spiritual conversations with people who believe differently than you becomes natural. My, my daughter, Anna, Anna could have a spiritual conversation with almost anybody. She comes home all the time. Yeah, Dad, this is what my friend believes, but I believe this, and we talked about that. And so she's incredibly natural at it, and I love that. And I say, I want to do that the way Anna does it. Number eight, Jesus is the only way to God, but there's a hundred ways to Jesus. Let me explain. There are, there are two great uh, falsehoods around the idea of how we find ourselves to our way to God. The first one is one the world believes that there are many ways to God. It believes that all religions lead to the same place. It doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you're sincere, because of course you've never been sincerely wrong about anything. But you just, everyone will find their own path to God. It's not true. Jesus actually dismantled that idea. In John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one no matter how sincere, no matter what they thought, no one comes to the Father 
except through me. If you had known me, you have known my Father also. So Jesus says he is the only way that your neighbor, your family member, the person you're going to meet at dinner, the only way they're ever going to find God is for Jesus. That's why it's important that your neighbors and your friends know that you're not just a moral person or you're not just a kind person, but that you are a Jesus person. Because your kindness and your morality will not help them find God. So the world says this falsehood that there's many ways to God. But one of the falsehoods of the church is there's only one way we imagine people find their way to Jesus. And that's not true. I grew up in the age and in the, uh, the vein of the church where altar calls happened every Sunday. Right? A lot of good came from it. A lot of people came to the Lord every, you know, some, some literally came every Sunday. But that was how you got saved. It was like Jesus only worked weekends. Oh, it's Sunday. And if you wouldn't meet, if you like led somebody into a spiritual conversation, then you invited him to church and you hoped that the pastor gave an altar call because that's how people always got saved. If they didn't walk the aisle, we didn't know if it was real. The problem with that is it made evangelism the pastor's job. It made winning people to Jesus only resting on the pastor because if I can get them to church, maybe the pastor will preach the right message and they'll walk down front. The most common prayer of repentance is not a long flowery one that is recited by a pastor. The most common prayer of repentance goes a little bit like this. Jesus, here I am. I'm at the end of myself. I'm out of ideas and I need you. It's like the most common prayer. You know where those prayers are prayed? They're more often prayed in hospital waiting rooms. They're more often prayed when people get to the grocery store and they realize that what they need to feed their family doesn't match up with what's in their bank account. Or when they're afraid or they're confused. People pray that prayer a hundred different ways. There are a hundred different ways to Jesus. But Jesus is the only way to God. What if their friend who goes to church was prepared to help them have that conversation where it takes place? In some respects, I think the church was not ready to have these conversations when COVID hit. And the church ended up as rattled as our unbelieving neighbors. But what if we had been able to have stepped into that and said, you know what, you can have peace in this situation. Could have been a very different situation. So there's a hundred ways to meet Jesus and we want to take people in any one of those ways they want to go, wherever they are in that spot. Number seven, thoughts on evangelism. For most people, coming to faith is a process. Now this comes against that idea of the altar call where suddenly someone has a change of heart and they step forward. Yes, there is a moment where you trust Christ, but how do you get there? What is your conversion moment? What do you think of when you think of people coming to faith in Jesus? Most of us think of it in a way that is the exception rather than the rule. Because we think of instant conviction, repentance, fullness all at once. We think of Saul on his way to Damascus getting knocked off his horse. And in a moment, Acts 3, 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters 
to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, the men or the women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is ready to go tie up Christians and bring them back for persecution. And on that day, when he did that, he's knocked from his horse, has a divine encounter, recognized that that spiritual being is Jesus, seeks counsel, and 18 verses, and literally just days later, Acts 3.20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the Son of God. In days, he went from persecuting to preaching in the synagogues where he was on his way to find Christians to persecute. I love that conversion story of Paul who woke up one day going this way and that way, but even by biblical standards, that is the exception. It's not the rule. There are far more people like Nicodemus in Scripture than there are people like Paul. Nicodemus, completely different story. He's spiritually curious and his appetite is wet and he goes to meet with Jesus and he does it at nighttime because he doesn't want any of his friends to see we'll find out in a minute why who his friends were but Jesus explains the way that he can find peace with God and he admits there's something going on here he says that we know that you come from God but he can't get by his own internal wrestling and he, and he walks away Jesus answers his questions and he still says how can this be there's no indication that he said yes to Jesus that night he appears twice more in the Gospels. The next time he appears, he's with his friends, the Pharisees. And they're persecuting Jesus. You're like, wait a minute, weren't you over around the fire listening to Jesus the other night? Didn't you get saved? No, probably not. He was just in the mix. So in the next time he appears, he's with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are persecuting the Christians. And he stops them, and he says, does not our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. He's, going, he's admitting, I'm wrestling here. Why are we persecuting this guy? Maybe, maybe there's more going on. The next time we see Nicodemus, it's not until after the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says in John 19, 39, Nicodemus also, who had early come to Jesus by night, came to bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So now he is taking care of the body of Jesus. But Nicodemus did not have this Saul of Tarsus encounter. He had an arc of turning where he came to the Lord. Jesus is not rattled by your neighbor's process in coming to him. Jesus is not rattled by your children's process in coming. Some of you are like, I have adult children and they're making me crazy because they know better. And Jesus is not rattled by the processing. In the 1970s, there was a guy named James Engel, no relation to Lou, who was uh, very much into evangelism, but he, he was noticing this idea that there weren't many Saul of Tarsus encounters, there were far more Nicodemus encounters. And so he invented what he called the Engel Scale to talk about how people came to Jesus. And he laid it out like this. There is a negative 10, okay? If zero is where somebody comes to Jesus, there is a negative 10. Negative 10 says they have no feelings about a supreme being. They are totally secular. They don't have any thoughts whatsoever about a higher being. There are very few people at a negative 10. Most of us inherently have some sense that there is a God somewhere. But this is at the extreme end of the scale. Then there's a negative eight. They acknowledge that maybe there's a God, but they're really not interested. Maybe they're even hostile towards God. And then there are people at a negative six. They say, well, if there's a God, how do I fit in? Like, what does it even mean? This is like what I would call a hopeful agnostic. Like, I hope so, but I don't know where to go from here. 
Then maybe at a negative four, they would say, God exists, but we can't really know anything about him. They're frustrated with the fact that they've had a hunger in their heart, but their neighbor who knows a little something hasn't told them anything. They're at a negative four. And you find people at a negative two, well, okay, God does exist, but I fall so short. These are people that are very realistic. They're like, I'm in trouble. Then at a negative one, maybe they're saying, I better do something about this. Maybe it's after a traumatic life event or something has happened in their life. They've lost a friend and they realize, oh, eternity is real and I need to do something. Then at a zero, they come to know Jesus. Then, of course, it goes the other direction at a plus one where they're asking, okay, now that I know Jesus, how do I live? And then at number two, how do I incorporate with the body? Number three, now I'm experiencing communion with God at a deep level. And then they make behavioral adjustments. And then they grow and eventually they're participating in a church and they're, they're contributing. However, 99% of the evangelism that we do is moving people from a negative one to a plus one. That's where we put all of our efforts. But the whole process is evangelism. And if you move your neighbor from a negative eight to a negative six, that's evangelism. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't get to pray the prayer with them. No, but most people need the gospel presented to them six or seven times in a way that they understand it before they ever say yes. So, is your moving them from a negative nine to a negative seven, does that count? Jesus would say it did. Paul would say it did. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. So neither... He who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. He who moves a person from a negative nine to a negative five is the same as the person that moves them from a negative one to a plus one. The Lord sees it all and he loves it. You're talking with your neighbor at the level they are and representing Jesus makes you a fellow worker with Paul and Apollos and Billy Graham and whoever ends up praying with them to accept Christ. Telling your neighbor about a scripture that means something to you and they just listen, that counts. Serving your neighbor to show them that life is not all about you, that's evangelism. Taking 30 seconds to pray with somebody who may not have ever prayed for themselves is evangelism. It all counts. So when you hear the stories of going door to door and you're going, I can't do that, that doesn't mean you can't move people along that line. It all counts. Number six, unanswered questions will be asked. There's a lot of angst around the idea of evangelism because we're afraid. We don't know the Bible well enough. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, right? What if they ask me, you know, I'm just telling them about the love of Jesus and they're going to ask us how the Nephilim entered into the daughters of men. Like, I don't know. Don't ask me these questions. I'm not even going to have these conversations with you. Nobody likes to be asked questions you don't know the answers to. It makes us feel stupid. I told you before, I had a, a career as an appliance salesman. Three days. Short career. Um, I was terrible at it. Just absolutely terrible. Mostly because I didn't know anything about the appliances. Um, training was zero. Those are the appliances. Those are the customers. Go for it. And I remember talking to somebody about a dishwasher, and at one point I wasn't sure if it was a dishwasher or a clothes washer. Like, I just knew nothing. And it was just, I felt so bad and so dumb having to answer questions and going to ask. And, and so we naturally, nobody gravitates towards those sort of situations. 
Nobody goes, how could I make myself just look really dumb? Like, what, under what circumstances would people ask me questions I don't know the answers to? Let me try and get in that situation. And so we avoid the idea of talking about spiritual things because we're afraid they're going to ask us questions we don't know the answer to. They, let me just tell you, they will. People will ask you questions. This is how you can respond when somebody asks you a question about your faith that you don't know. You can say, I don't know. Like, that's totally justified. I know more than I did a year ago, but there's things I don't know. Maybe we sit down and we study this out together. They are more concerned when you act like you know everything than they are when you act like you really don't know everything. The people of God in the New Testament were regarded not for their knowledge or their theology, but for their love. That is what drew people to Christ. So, number five. People respond to the gospel more quickly in their own indigenous language. Okay? We have our, our brother who's got extensive ministry experience in India. And uh, we're going to have coffee in the morning, and I want to hear more about that. The idea that I would go to India and preach in these churches and be effective, it's not going to happen. They would be polite. They would sit and listen. But they, they would, like, you, you have to speak the language that people have. And even in an all-English-speaking culture, the church has its own language. We say things like, if it is God's will, what we really mean is, yeah, I don't think God's going to answer this one. You know, I'm going to give God an out. We say things like, um, that's not my spiritual gift, which is your way of saying, find somebody else. I'm not going to do that. Or, uh, well, Lord willing, which means, yeah, I'm definitely not going to that. Thanks for inviting me. But, you know, we have our own little code of things that we say, and we, we have the same things when we talk about the things of the Lord. If we do not learn to speak about the things of God in the language of the people we are speaking to, then we can't be surprised when they don't hear us. Paul was very intentional about bringing the message of Jesus to people using reference points that they would understand. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians where within five verses, he acknowledges their culture. I'm not 1 Corinthians, in Acts 17. He acknowledges their culture and two quotes of their literary heroes all in one little package. He just says, hey, this is what your poets say. And this is how the Lord responds to the very things that your own culture says. Paul loved people enough to understand them and to relate to them so they could be all that Jesus wanted them to be. If your entire life is spent surrounded by believers, you will end up speaking a language that unbelievers will not understand. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to spend time with people who don't know him so you understand how to talk to them. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21, Paul wrote, To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. He said, I, you know what? I learned people's language and I, I become who they are in order to win them to Jesus. If you really want to win your neighbor to Jesus, when you start talking to them, ask more questions than, than statements. Learn what makes them tick. Learn what they're excited about. Engage them on that. If I ask you five questions about your life, you know what's natural for the most part? Is you ask me a question. When you ask me a question, now I'm answering questions about what's important to me. I'm not knocking on your door threatening you with impending death. I'm actually telling you about my life. But you've got to speak people's language to earn that right. 
Thought number four, the last few are short. Grace and expectations move in opposite directions. What are you talking about? One of the phrases that we have in Christianity is this. Yeah, I've got a grace for that. Meaning, yeah, I can put up with that for a while. But when the grace is gone, I'm gone. Right? Have you ever done something for a while? Yeah, I've got a grace. The Lord's letting me do that. But when the grace was gone, you're just out completely. We think of grace as a standalone factor or indicator. But actually, grace and expectations exist on a teeter-totter of sorts. Let me explain it this way. When there is high grace, expectations are low. When grace is low, expectations are high. Picture it this way. Young married couple, entirely full of grace for one another. They adore one another. One another can do no wrong. He can't fix a lawnmower. He can't hang a picture straight. He hasn't put the toilet lid down in years. She can't cook to save her life. Her hair is a mess. And they're so happy. They're just expectations are, you know what I mean? Grace is high, expectations are so low. And they're happy. Five years later, they're meeting with the pastor. They have two kids. He has gotten his act together. He can fix things around the house. His career has taken off. He's providing well. She's become an amazing homemaker. However, grace is low expectations are super high now and the things that they will tell their pastor that make them angry about each other are crazy she's mad about how he takes the trash out he can't do anything right she can't do anything right because when grace is high expectations are low but when expectations rise grace is gone say so what does this have to do with evangelism because we approach most people with low grace and high expectation and then we wonder why they don't come to Jesus. Jesus approached people with high grace and initially low expectation. He's like, they're going to be how they are. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 said, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be seasoned, or always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. You cannot be gracious towards your neighbor and hold them to high standards at the same time. Because you know what? They don't know Jesus. They're going to act that way. So you display grace to them and do not lay expectations on them. If you lay expectations on them, they don't feel any grace. And why do they want to even get involved in that? We, our job is to sprinkle grace with our friends and neighbors and little bite-sized chunks that they can go home and chew on. If you dribble grace into their life in bite-sized chunks, they'll take a lot of grace in, and at some point they'll go, oh, there's something going on here. They'll take in more than you know. My kids ended up with a bunch of candy. Little pieces. If they're under a certain size, they don't count. You can eat a lot of those. I mean, you could. I'm not saying I did. I did, but, and you can, you can think, I haven't taken a whole lot of those in, and then the kids come home from school and go, where'd all my candy go? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, didn't, I didn't, didn't eat that much at once, but I ate more than I thought I did. It was all hypothetical, of course. Your neighbors can ingest little bits of grace from you, and all of a sudden they can look back and realize, wow, something's different there, and they're asking you questions they would not have asked 
had you not been serving bite-sized chunks of grace all the way along. Number three, evangelism is about introducing cultures and individuals to Jesus. When we think of evangelism, we think primarily of uh, Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the tree is a righteous life, whoever captures souls is wise. We think of that person moving from a negative one to a plus one, that moment of conversion. However, the idea of evangelism in the Great Commission is much broader than that. We started talking on the intro about how Jesus laid out expectations to these 11 guys that were left about what he was going to have them do. This is what he told them was their task. Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you till the end of the age. What is the activity of the church among individuals and nations in this era that we live in? It is to disciple nations and people, to prepare people and the space they live in for the return of a king with the minimum amount of pain to them at that moment. Because here's the deal. One day they're all going to bow. They're all going to bow. One day all nations will bow before him. Our job is to make that bowing easier than it might be if they didn't know the truth. It has never been easier than it is to bow right now, but it will be harder particularly when it is forced. So our job as evangelists is to prepare the community and the people in that community for that moment when they'll see him. That means there's an evangelistic element to representing Jesus in the public arena that is just as powerful as knocking on doors and talking to people. I have a friend who works in a tech firm, and uh, it's recently grown a ton. They had about 300 employees, and they merged with another company, and they had six, and then they hired another 300. So it went from 300 to 900 overnight, maybe with just a couple of months. And he said, we had a little prayer meeting going on with about three of us. And when we hired a bunch of people, word got out that there was a prayer meeting, and suddenly it was our prayer meeting once a week in the mornings got to be like five or six times the size that it was. And he said, I'm looking around realizing I don't even know where some of these are, people are spiritually. This guy is discipling his workforce at 7 a.m. before work ever starts just by this little prayer meeting. He is, with those who are, are good with the Lord, he's going deep with them. With those that are right on the fringe, he's encouraging them. He's doing evangelism through this little prayer meeting at work. God honors that. All of it's evangelism and all of it counts. Thought number nine, servants are irresistible. It's counterintuitive, really, because you would think you'd disregard a servant. But those who serve are so rare that when they serve, they get noticed. Early 2000s, many of you know that we were involved in really groundbreaking ministry at a place called Burning Man. Massive art festival out in the desert, largely pagan, very dark, very difficult we went out, and on the way out, we decided, or before we left, we decided if, if five pastors are going to go to Burning Man, we better take a gift. What do you take, you know, 70,000 pagans that dance before the fire all night as a gift? So one of our guys suggested lighter fluid. And uh, another guy said loincloths, which actually would have been helpful. Uh, but we decided to take water. 5,000 bottles the first year, 10,000 bottles after that, to just hand out and pray for people. The second year we're there, 
the founder of the event reaches out to me and said, can I meet with you? Will you come? I was petrified. I didn't know what he was going to do. But I met, in fact, this is the guy, it's not a very good picture. Larry Harvey's the founder of Burning Man. And we become very unlikely friends over years. I would go to his home in San Francisco. He allowed me to lay hands on him and pray for him one time in his own home. And at one point, I asked him, I said, Larry, we're not exactly your core vibe. Like, you've been kind to us. You've, you've offered me access. He would, one, I took a team of dream interpreters to their office one time. You ought to hear the dreams that pagans have. Oh, my word. They all had the same dream. It's the end of the world, and I'm being chased by demons. It's like, I can explain that. <laughs> it's the end of the world. You're being chased by demons. Like, I, I, I'm serious. We probably had 15 of them want their dreams interpreted. Ten of them had the same dream. And I asked him, I said, Larry, why, why would you, like, open the door to me like this? I don't understand. And he told me, I'll never forget. In fact, I think it was the night that this picture was taken, about 2 o'clock in the morning out in the desert. He said, you're the first pastor who's ever come out here and been kind to us. Most of them don't come. And the ones that do come stop at the gate and yell at us. He goes, you just came in and you're just kind of rational and kind and we can deal with that. When we serve people, doors open into their hearts that we can never argue our way into. 1 Corinthians 9.19 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win some more. He said, I'm free. I don't need to serve my neighbor, but I'm going to serve my neighbor, because if I serve my neighbor, I might win my neighbor. When I go get my trash receptacles and pull them up, I'm going to take my neighbors up too. It's a little thing, but I serve them, and I might win them. I'm going to respond to people in a way of, what can I do for you so that when you really do have a need, you look to me and I can answer that. A servant's heart is more evangelistic than the heart of someone with the approach of a Harvard debate team member. And serving, this is the crazy part, it's within your ability. You can do that. You are not going to jump off a cliff with a homemade wingsuit. You are not going to go door to door in Wapaton, North Dakota. But you can serve your neighbor. You can serve here at the bridge. When you're serving in kids' ministries, let me just put a plug for that, you're actually serving your neighbors so that people can come and hear the word. When you rake your neighbor's leaves, you're actually in the middle of a teaching moment of this is how a Christian reacts. When you give someone a cup of cold water, that is something that Jesus says, I see that you did that, and it moved them maybe from a negative nine to a negative seven, but that was evangelism, and I count you with Paul and Apollos and all the others because I'm the one who causes them to grow. I want to ask if Jenna would just jump on the guitar as we're getting ready to close. With the last one, thought number one. You were made to do this. Maybe you weren't made to go door to door. Maybe you weren't made to have stone cold conversations with people that you don't know. But you were made to serve and you were made to disciple nations one person at a time. It's not just obedience to a command. It is the fulfillment of a destiny. Some of you, the frustration and boredom that you have in your own heart with your own spiritual walk is because there's this area of life that you have not stepped into and you are actually bored because you were under-activated. You ever had a job you were wildly overqualified for? You're like, why am I doing this? Some of your, your spiritual walk is like that. Why am I doing this? Because you're actually being underemployed. You're not engaging at the level he's called you to. 
all through scripture, there are passages where it talks about the glory of the Lord filling the earth. We love to think about that, but we don't think much about how it happens. It happens ultimately when he returns, but until then, people like you and I serving our neighbor, displaying the glory of God to them and winning them one by one. What if all of Olathe could be filled with the glory of God? What if it would be hard to walk down the street in Grandview without encountering the presence of the Lord? Like, who would not want to live in that world? You can be a part of that happening if you represent him in those areas. Stand with me. Many of you know I had a dream, maybe about a year ago, where in the dream I was traveling with a friend of mine who actually does do massive crusades in, in Africa. Like, Jacob Ebersole is maybe late 30s, and he does these hundreds of thousands of people in Africa, these crusades, tens of thousands of people coming to the Lord. And in the dream, he was going with me because I was going to get a heart transplant. It was a physical operation, but it was going to be a heart for evangelism. I want the Lord to give us a heart transplant. Doesn't mean we go banging on doors. If you're gifted at that, go, like go right now. But if you're not, that doesn't mean that you're not an evangelist. So Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts, that you would give us a heart transplant for sharing the good news of Jesus. Lord, our hearts are in pain because we have friends and loved ones and family members who don't know you. And Jesus, we know that you're the only way they'll ever find God. So would you begin in the Bridge family to do a heart transplant, to give us the tools and the understanding and the anointing to share what you have done with those who don't know you. Just continue to ask him to do that as we go into a couple of minutes of worship here.